another topic you might have seen or heard about recently. Um, it involves court marshals and military prosecution authority. Generally, this concept is being driven by sexual assault, uh, but you know, I predict, you can mark my words, that eventually it's going to drift into domestic violence, uh, which has kind of been, I don't know, it's kind of unfortunately got a back seat. Uh, sexual assault when it comes to military members, which is unfortunate because, you know, to be honest, at least in a military context, a lot of what gets reported as a sexual assault in the military would never be reported as sexual assault in normal society, right? I'm talking about, like, somebody gets their butt grabbed at a party, they're not calling 911, right? They're not calling the cops to come follow report. But yeah, in the military, that absolutely happens. Um, and then the converse might really be true when it comes to domestic violence. Like you might see somebody call 911, you know, because their husband or boyfriend or whatever, like, I don't know, threw their phone across the hallway or locked the door or changed the locks or something. And for a long time, that would go on in military families, and it probably wouldn't get reported nearly as much. And I will also say that, unlike the civilian system, there are pressure on, on military spouses not to cause their counterpart spouse to lose their job. Right? I mean, you can be arrested and charged with domestic violence in the civilian world, and you're probably not going to lose your job. Um, you know, unless there's some other factors that really go into it. Like, uh, that's just the nature of civilian employment. But in military, like, there's smoke and there's fire on domestic abuse. There's a good chance that you're going to lose your job. And so that's inherently, um, it's inherently discouraging for abuse spouses to report or participate in investigation. And so uh, sexual assault gets a um, big flag because it, it generally doesn't involve spouses. And to the extent it does involve spouses, there's usually a domestic violence aspect with it as well. And the same kind of rationale applies. But generally, when you're looking at the vast majority of recordings, it's going to be sexual assaults between non-spouses probably people not even in relationships most of the time. And the, the domestic violence piece is just less less visible and more frustrating for prosecutors and investigators because um, spouses don't want to participate. And so, anyway, the point is, this ought to be a topic that's fairly non-political. I know that in some ways the sexual assault Mania is a little bit politicized, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be politicized because it's not, it doesn't go to any root belief system. Like, there's nobody out there that believes, uh, you know, rape should be legal, right? Um, and so, where you get the disagreements on sexual assault, you know, is really due process, you know. 
do these sex crimes inherently actually deserve some elevated status versus any other type of crime? Like, um, and then the just general nature of the difficulties and credibility with sex allegations or sex assault allegations and how those are treated. And so while those lines are drawn and people disagree on them, they're not like hardcore political divisions. Um, and it, it's a similar, you know, similar division and something like, you know, okay, how are we treating the opioid crisis? I haven't really seen what I would call significant lines along political parties about something like the opioid crisis. And I'm just going to use the word opioid crisis because that's what it has been called, and I don't know how else to describe it, that captures the entire sort of essence of that. But maybe we'll talk in another podcast about that scenario. But anyway, military justice system. Um, there's an effort to change it, and long story short is that at the moment, from a at least letter of the law standpoint, military commanders have the authority to decide to prosecute or not prosecute military members who are accused of committing some crime. Now, that's a general idea, and I don't want this to be a deep dive, you know, lecture into military justice and the legal structure there, but, uh, and unfortunately, it's not really an easy area to go research on your own either. Um, because you're going to get a lot of generalities, and you're not going to get a lot of specifics. Um, fortunately, that's the limits uh, on Google and places like that with this topic, because it's very, it's a lot like any other government bureaucracy. There's some high-level rules, and then there's a ton of agency rules that end up playing out. And in this case, the agency rules literally define how military justice is what they would call administered, and they're very, they're very important. But bottom line is that for the most part, you know, some level of commander has some level of authority on what kind of uh, charges can be filed. And I'm just going to use common phrases that everyone should understand, but they're not technically exact um, or technically accurate language because. Uh, Courts martial use just weird words. Like charges aren't filed, uh, you know, they're like preferred and referred, or charges are forwarded, and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, and then the other kind of piece that matters um, is the jury piece of a court martial. So you have the prosecution, like who can file charges and who has the authority to file charges, and then who gets to pick the jury. Like most everyone's probably familiar with the jury pool civilian, you know, maybe everyone listening here has probably been selected for a jury duty at some point, right? And you go in there and it's random, it's usually based on a, or at least it's to be based on a phone book in a lot of cases, you know, if you had a phone number in that area, uh, who knows how they do it nowadays in, in different places, but the idea is that it's random and you go through screening by the local prosecutors and they, and they develop a jury pool. Military doesn't work that way, generally. Uh, a pool of people is picked, but it's definitely not random. Because there are rules around who can be uh, 
not a jury member. They usually have to be superior in rank. Usually it's officers. Uh, the recent changes allow for some enlisted members to be on there, but they're usually high-ranking enlisted members. And so it's not exactly or at all a jury of peers, as we would call it in the civilian world. It is a jury of superiors. And not just, and not random superiors, selected uh, superiors. And I mean, generally, like I said, the exact language and the rules for all the services can vary. How those rules are applied specifically might be tricky, but you know, generally, commanders are supposed to pick people who they think are going to do a good job, for lack of a, of a better um, better way to describe it. Like a commander will pick someone who they believe, based on their experience, their rank, and their temperament, that that person will be a good judgment of fact in a trial. And they get appointed to be the jury, and things from there kind of take place very similar to a civilian trial. They still go through, you know, the process of, of eliminating particular jurors for different biases and things like that. But um, that's kind of the core construct that is being looked at and being changed, like the, the military commander's role in prosecution discretion and. You know, just for context, in, in the civilian court, that prosecution and discretion lies with the prosecutors. Now, where does that authority come from? Generally, that authority in the state comes from the attorney general, who is an elected official, generally, um, who then has delegated down authority to other sections, like some district attorney who's like the head attorney for a particular court district. Sometimes they're elected as well. Sometimes they might be appointed. It really depends on the city and the state and the county and all the rules of the different constitutions of different states. But generally speaking, there is an elected person who then delegates the prosecution discretion down to professional prosecutors you know, who are licensed attorneys who prosecute as their job, like the deals all of these, you know, court TV shows about crime. You know, you have the district attorney, you have prosecutors, um, and they get the evidence from, you know, police. Um, you know, the police learn of a crime, they collect some evidence, they open a case, they investigate, then um, they coordinate with prosecutors um, and determine if there's enough evidence to move forward with the case. It's probably good. Unless you've been living under a rock, you might be familiar, familiar with this process um, just from what's some of the, the more high-profile trials that have gone on. Um, yeah, if you haven't lived under a rock, you know, just watch uh, Law and Order, watch the shows, you'll get a gist of And to be succinct about it, military sexual assaults know, became a thing, um, I don't know, like 10 years ago, maybe, there was a point where there was, like, a big scandal of military sexual assaults and sexual harassment with, like, trainees, whether it was Air Force Academy or, like, Air Force training, and you had Marines and Army situations come out, and so there was, like, a, a focus on this, you know, that happened some 
know, 10, 12, who knows how, exactly how many And it led to a bunch of changes in the military. And it ultimately led to some changes um, in what they call the UC, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There was a new act from Congress passed in 2016 uh, that made some changes to the whole thing. But, I mean, it's lar- it was largely driven by the sexual assault. Um, and what had happened was, as the military took a initiative to discuss sexual assault, to be aware, to ultimately encourage reporting, right? That was kind of what the idea was. People in the military were afraid to report that they'd been sexual assault because of it would impact their careers, they'd lose their jobs, they wouldn't get promoted, all these kind of things. So the military went about creating an environment or attempt to create an environment where people were more empowered to report these sexual assaults um, and try to get it around the inherent challenges. And what those inherent challenges are in the military is different than civilian norms. Like a prosecutor in civilian has one job, and that's prosecutor crime. That's it. That's their job. Military, and you know, by virtue of their position, military commanders, they got a lot of abilities. They have to not only protect their members from being sexually assaulted, they have to protect their other members who are accused, uh, protect their due process rights, and they still got to protect the mission. They got to protect the integrity of the old dang operation. They got a lot of competing interests. Um, that a local prosecution regime just doesn't have. And because of that, and because the military's job, right, is to win wars, it's not to, it's not a criminal, it's not a criminal justice system. The job is to win wars. And so anytime some kind of crime poses a threat to the mission, that's the priority. The mission is the priority. It's not crime. It's just not. Like, that's not what the military is there for. And so commanders are forced into these weird sort of corners where it's just there's not a good answer, not a clear answer on what to do because there's so many competing interests. And when you, if you prioritize the mission, that is inherently going to deprioritize either due process rights or victim rights or fundamental fairness for all of these and that's why there's things called like mandatory reporting. If certain people in the military learn about some type of crime, they're required under orders to tell someone about it. And, you know, so in a sexual assault context, that once someone learns about it, that, just, that immediately can trigger a law enforcement investigation regardless of what anybody wants. <laughs> like, even if the victim doesn't. You know, the victim makes a statement, I was sexually assaulted, as a joke. Someone hears it, reports it, there's a really good chance that a full-blown legal investigation, law enforcement investigation, is going to take place, even if that victim doesn't, even like, comes out from the object, right? Um, just because there's not, no one has that, that singular duty to manage that prosecution. It's just not there. It's not a position. 
military that does that, and it becomes a bureaucratic function. So the investigation of sexual assault is a bureaucratic function and not a function of a prosecutor, uh, prosecutor deciding what to do based on individual facts in every case. Right? It's the military, they're going to handle everything the same way because that's all they know how to do. And so, you know, what happened is they encouraged reporting of sexual assault and they expanded this definition of consent. I'm not going to go into consent really as a topic on this particular podcast. It's not uh, directly related to the military justice system. But um, there's also a competing interest between prosecuting sexual assault Suspects or subjects, whatever you call them, who accuse sexual assault, and then getting victims treatment from a mental health perspective. And what has happened is you have an inconsistency with the way that consent is communicated and what that means. And I'll give you an example uh, sexual assault is literally one of the only crimes that both the victim and the accused person can both believe the exact same facts happen and perceive a completely different scenario, right? An assaulter can absolutely believe that the girl wanted to have sex right? And the girl in the morning and the next day may absolutely believe that there's no way in million years that she ever consented to have sex with that guy. And they both can be right. That's a problem. Right? That's a problem in trying to ascertain the truth. And so for mental health treatment, they don't focus on the truth, right? They focus on the emotional needs. Like if a person believes they're sexually assaulted, then they need treatment that doesn't really matter on whether their belief is correct or not. And it's actually the same, the opposite People have been under the law sexually assaulted. They don't believe that they were sexually assaulted due to, like, some nature of the, of the scenario or they invited them in or something, right? So, um, what that's led to is a lot of people reporting sexual assaults that under the mental health or the treatment aspect count as sexual assault for a statistics purpose, but they would never be something that a person could be charged for a crime about. If they're just not, um, just isn't enough facts to sustain an allegation. And so I'll give you an example. Someone might think, well, I think I was sexually assaulted. Like, I don't quite remember what happened. I know I had sex because of the biological aftermath, but I don't know if I consented or not. Right? That's not evidence of crime, but it's enough to trigger, you know, a mental health um, scenario. Then when you get into this bureaucratic thing, you know, the providers tend to err on the side of saying, okay, she was sexual assault because that is going to entitle her um, services. And I'm going to use him and her because sure, men can be sexually assaulted, but it's usually by other men. 
And if it's not, well, let me just give you an example under the wall. Most, or I guess the way that these things are phrased sometimes are sexual assaults or sexual crimes are termed as either penetrative or not. Meaning, some part of somebody's body went inside somebody else's body. And, um, there's not a lot of situations where a female is putting part of her body inside of a male. Um, or at least, you know, as often or as practically as the, the opposite is true. Right? I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there are different types of sexual activities and pleasures that take place out there. But generally speaking, it's just not what you see. And that's not what the allegations are. Occasionally, but like the vast majority is male on female, and the other big majority is male on male. The female on male is like such a sliver of statistics that it's almost just annoying. So, anyway, point is, you get a lot of things being reported as sexual assault that actually aren't sexual assault on Period. And so, when Congress starts looking at these statistics, it looks like, man, the military went and focused on sexual assault, and all that's happened is there's been more sexual assault. Well, that's not really true. What's happened is there's more reporting, um, and what is the report? And not only is there more reporting of actual crimes, a lot of sexual situations that aren't crimes have also been. And it, and it gives this impression that, holy shit. It's getting worse, not getting better. So the changes that we made to the military justice system in 2016 have actually made the problem worse somehow. And you know, just on that note, there's talk about statistics and what's kind of driving this. There's been some reports that also came out that even though you have a massive amount of sexual assault reports and a very low amount of convictions, uh, a report came out that said a large portion of the cases that are taken to court um, the military should never have been taken to court because it wasn't, didn't meet the legal standards for taking a case to court. If you didn't have enough evidence or it's like probable cause or enough evidence to reasonably expect success at trial, things like this. Um, and in some ways, a lot of these trials were political show trials, right? The military is being told by politicians to solve the sexual assault crime problem. The only way anyone knows how to solve crime, you know, in this country is to make it illegal and put people through trials. So that's what they're doing. They're not getting convictions because the juries don't believe crime has actually been committed. Um, which makes sense because, as the report said, most of these cases, or not most, but a lot of these cases, are going to court without good evidence um, because they're a flimsy kind of case. And it's also important to know that the cases that the military take to court are generally, it's like goodwill, it's like secondhand cases. Here's what I mean. Generally, not every service does it the same way. Like, and it doesn't make sense if we're not talking about foreign jurisdiction, like Navy, common boats, or whatever, or like foreign Navy bases. But if it's a 
continental United States or even, you know, a stateside based Alaska and Hawaii, those states generally have the first shot at prosecuting somebody for sexual assault unless there's a weird jurisdiction situation. So normally what would happen is that crime, you know, gets reported to local state prosecutors and then they get decided, do we want to take this to court? under state law or not. And it's usually only when they say no that the military does. Now, I mean, there's exceptions, and there's a lot of weird jurisdiction rules, so no, it's not a blanket categorical thing, but it is a typical process. Um, and so, what you would see is any, for the most part, any, like, stranger rape by a military member of a civilian victim, the state that that happened in is probably going to prosecute that crime. So, like, the real strong evidence slammed up this guy's getting convicted and going to prison for life, 40 years or whatever. Those cases aren't going through the military justice system. They're going through the state system, and that brings the military's numbers down because they don't get the easy, slammed up, high-profile cases. Um, they kind of get the ones that someone thinks they're sexually assaulted, but the evidence isn't really there, and the state would never consider themselves having a, a reasonable likelihood to succeed in a trial, so they don't they don't um, press charges. And you know, so the military is left with this sexual assault report they got to do something with. The state doesn't want to prosecute, so what does the military do? They do what bureaucracies do, and they're well, we'll just do it then. They just run it through, and it's like a like an algorithm. We'll just put the facts in, and the answer will come out, and what's happening is the answer that comes out a lot of times is not true. And so that's the, uh, it's led to some statistics that um, on their face value are somewhat troubling, and that's what's leading Congress in this effort to try to, again, Institute some changes, but this time some very fundamental changes in court martial themselves, most likely. Um, so that's sort of an intro into what I want to talk about. Um, and again, I, like, I don't see this as a political, contentious issue, and so I think this is another good one, you know, in this initial series of non-contentious topics to discuss. And so, yeah, there's this new effort to change the way military prosecutions are going to happen at least for sexual assault. Now, this is not necessarily a big change because sexual assault prosecutions generally in the military are already handled differently than other types of crimes, including types of violence. And, and generally what that means is in some cases, which level of commander, meaning maybe a rank or position, has had their authority to what they would might say dispose or decide on cases. So, you know, generally any commander that's on official, officially appointed to command uh, can exercise some level of court martial authority and go through that prosecution discretion, right? That forwarding of charges or, you know, notifying a member of charges and basically recommending that they be charged or um, tried by court martial for some crime. Well, what had happened was, 
you know, somebody was nervous that essentially younger, less experienced, lower-ranking commander were making bad prosecution decisions. Um, and then that actually extended up to even, like, full-blown colonel, those six, in a lot of cases, lost their ability to make prosecution discretion on sexual assault cases. They had to go to, like, at least, you know, a general-level summit. Um, you know, and in the different services treat that differently based on where their, you know, their first 07 happens to sit or you know, who their installation commanders are and things like that. Uh, but that was the idea. They were reserving the right to decide on prosecution to basically a general and no one below that. And if you think about that, um, there's not that many generals those period. So now you have very few people who are tasked with a whole bunch of other things also having to make these prosecutions. And because they're, you know, general and the drugs, they're usually far removed from the situation at hand, which is both good and bad. Uh, it's good in that they literally probably have no personal knowledge or interest of the people involved, um, which may not be the case for installation commander a crime section of installation. And that also goes towards picking the members, so on a, what they would call a general general picks members, picks that jury pool, they generally are going to come from the installation where the trial is going to be held, and that general is going to have not really a damn clue about any of those people. She's going to pick those members based on probably what their paper records say, right? Their search record. What is their job? How long have they been in? They've never been in trouble. Cool. Uh, they're available on dates. Let's make them. Let's make these personal characters. And that's kind of been the way that it's going for a while. And in any bureaucracy, this is what happens, right? That one person, you know, you line up for one man or one woman, right? So that man or woman ends up just delegating these decisions all around to a bunch of people that they're really not supposed to be delegated It's just the function of limited resources in a bureaucracy and the reality is, is that that general doesn't know anything more about those cases than anyone else. The lawyers are advising the general properly know more about it, but you know, the general's advisory staff, not including lawyers, probably don't have a damn clue. Like, they don't know. All they know is like whatever information is forwarded up to that. And so from a practical decision-making standpoint, there's nothing really that makes the general a better decision maker than that position. Um, other than the fact that they're removed from the installation generally, so they may not know or have personal attachment or association with any of the named people in any particular investigation. Um, but, again, in a bureaucracy, what ends up happening doesn't matter what it's for Marshall or anything else. 
they just begin to issue like policies. Like policies just organically grow up because there's limited resources, there's limited time, and a lot of stuff to do. So they try to make it a cookie cutter approach, do everything the same way, treat everything the same, because that's what the military knows how to do: standardization, maximizing resources. That's how they do it, right? They eliminate the risk of error by just ensuring there's a process to follow the exact same time, right? You call it the checklist joke, the checklist process. We're going to treat all these things like a checklist course. And for normal military or even just normal bureaucratic functions, that's probably just fine, right? And, and it, it works to the extent that a bureaucracy is ever going to you know, quote-unquote work, right? But when it comes to criminal justice and exercising prosecution discretion, using a one-size-fits-all good bitter approach is literally the opposite of what is supposed to happen. And that leads, right, to some very predictable results. Predictable from my view, I don't know if the people came from Paul's genes beginning, suspected something different would happen. They would be idiots if they had, but a lot of times people in military bureaucracy in that system in the DOD, they're really blind to reality sometimes about, you know, it's like they're in the matrix um, and they don't know they're in the matrix. But the, the trick that they were trying to get to was, I mean, I think, again, I don't like to use my opinion, but I mean, the evidence seems to suggest that the intention was to remove the bias of local commanders from the prosecution decision by proximity. They had bias by proximity. You know, it's like your neighbors, like all of these people are on the same installation, you know, and sexual assault became very synonymous with something like you might want to think about, like maybe like a high-ranking officer getting in trouble. There was a lot of delicacy, right, when a high-ranking officer gets in trouble because of their position of trust and their authority and all the other kind of things. And so whenever a, you know, a senior official gets in trouble or breaks walls, the big deal is handled very differently, so to speak, from a low-ranking enlisted person who gets in trouble. But what they've kind of done is ele- elevated sexual assault to that same kind of delicacy because of the, uh, you know, the heightened attention on sexual assaults in general. And what it ended up with is a system that's kind of placed today, right, where you have these disembodied generals treating a bunch of cases um, by policy, not by individual facts. And it's not like they're taking every case to court that doesn't need to go to court. There's some level of discretion exercised, but it, it, turn, it, it kind of turns on some very weird... A lot of things that they just wouldn't do in a normal criminal justice system. And the best way I can describe it might be that they handle like the game Like it like if there's not a clear yes or no answer, then it either becomes automatically no or yes, right? It's like, well we don't we have a system that accepts inputs of yes or no. And if it's anything but a yes or no, then the system can't do right? It's like, you know, does your automobile have a pin number or not? Does yes, then you know what to do with this vehicle that has a VIN number. You register it, you can sell it, you can top it. You got a vehicle that doesn't have a VIN number. You go to the DMV, 
it is not going to be a simple, straightforward process. Like somebody might not even, the person you're talking to there, you might not even know what the hell to do, right? Because it does not confuse. Because they're, the system is set up to expect certain types of inputs, and then when you get weird stuff, there's no clue. Problems, sexual assault, every case is weird. Because it's the one of those only cases where people can disagree about why something happened, but completely agree on what happened. But, but it's not the what happened that is the crime. It's the why it happens the crime. That's a weird thing. Like I don't want to get into like criminal justice theory and all that stuff about intent, like mental element and all that kind of stuff. But that's really what goes on um, in most sexual assault cases because this has been talked about a lot, and I don't know how much it, it, it makes it into people's minds of the average listener. We're not talking about stranger Military does not have thousands of stranger rape reports. That is not what is going on. In fact, stranger rapes are very, very rare. What you have is a big spectrum of incidences where you have two people at a bar, at a party, alcohol gets involved, some type of sexual activity takes place, either involving hands, mouths, you know, or full-blown sexual activity, sexual intercourse, and two, to the alcohol and the situation, People's intentions and desires are unclear, uncommunicated, and then in the morning, the memories are unclear. And this creates just a whole mess of trying to ascertain the truth. And it's not because the victim was drunk, it's not because the accused, you know, assaulter was drunk. It's the fact that they, all of them, were drinking in some capacity, and it creates an environment confusion, for lack of a better term, um, right, because, and it also creates an environment where people's normal inhibitions are lower, meaning someone may be willing to have sex in a manner, place, location with a particular person who they might normally not do that, and a person may be willing to actually try and be more aggressive, you know, shoot their shot uh, more readily than they would if they hadn't drinking, right? It's like a drunk guy hitting on a door, right? They would never do it when they're sober. Some people actually drink on purpose to help them go out and, you know, engage young sex because they're incapable of really being comfortable doing that while they're sober. That is what you get um, in these cases. And it's still not like it is so unclear, I can't be any more crystal clear on how unclear this seems to turn out. You'll have cases where, you know, again, I'm going to talk about men and women, that's what the bulk of them are. Someone, female, will invite a guy into the bed, and then in her mind, or, you know, or whatever the intent is, she'll either believe that she's set some limitations or try to set some limitations on what is considered acceptable, 
Um, and the guy, you know, will try to do stuff and probably get stopped. Um, or in a lot of cases, not get stopped. Like, doing it without permission, but with also without resistance. So, it's so unclear as to what's going on. And that's why you're getting so many, well, I don't say you're, that's why there's so many rules and not guilty verdicts out of these fact scenarios, because even the jury, at the end of what everyone says, they still don't know what the hell happens. When you have a beyond the reasonable doubt statement, uh, well, we don't even know what we believe, let alone whether it's been proved beyond reasonable doubt. And so, I mean, it's really easy to get to a not guilty. And to make that piece even more important is that the penalties of crime, uh, or the penalties associated with a sexual assault crime are no joke, right? Sex offender registration, all kinds of things, maybe you can't own a firearm. And so the, the risk of a jury erring in their verdict in a sexual assault case is exponentially more serious than an assault case for a robbery or something like that, right? And in the military, where you have officers, educated, you know, highly educated, experienced, older individuals as the jury, they're not blind to these facts. They know. They're like, yeah, this guy, we don't really know what happened here, but we know that if we find guilty, he's going to become a registered sex offender. And so all of that plays into the minds um, and the penalties, right? The penalties are crazy, too. But the whole point is, these aren't stranger rapes. They're not, yeah, we had a woman who was jogging and she got kidnapped, taken in a van somewhere, and sexually assaulted. You know, the cases that the military gets, and I said, those stranger rapes, the military doesn't prosecute those. Those get prosecuted by the states. The cases that the military gets are in almost, I mean, I don't want to remember on it, but I would comfortably say a majority of the cases are two people, male and female, who enter a bedroom willingly together. And then what happened in that bedroom, and whether it was consented to or not, becomes the question. You know, it, it's two people consensually in a bedroom, usually consensually in bed together, even. And then some kind of miscommunication slash assault happened, right? You know, a guy might get in there and go, like, I don't know, you can sleep next to me, but I don't want anything to happen. Guys, that's that right. I'm going to go try and do it anyway. You know, that's the kind of scenario I get. And you probably, and that's also where you probably get a lot of these unreported numbers. As you can see, you know, a guy tries, the girl says no, he tries again, that's technically sexual assault. But some females are going to report that, some aren't, right? So, the numbers are really, really difficult to take apart and understand. That's kind of what Congress is using um, to justify some of this change. And so now, you know, that's kind of the situation. That's the way it works now. That's the result of the previous change. Now we talk about what are these proposed changes and are they even going to change anything? 